turn to Psalm 2. Psalm 2. We're going to be reading the entire psalm, and then we'll be moving to Acts chapter 4. So if you happen by it on your way, you can put your finger there, and we'll get to Acts chapter 4 after we read Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Boy, that's a statement of the human condition, isn't it? Let us burst the bonds that God has imposed on us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Of course, a a prophecy, not only a statement about Israel's kings, but a prophecy that looks forward to the Son, the eternal Son. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Then turn, if you would, to Acts chapter 4. And you will notice as we read there that there is a connection between the passage that we'll be reading and Psalm 2. We're going to begin our reading in verse 23 of Acts 4, but you may know that the entire chapter, actually going back into Acts chapter 3, is the account of when Peter and John went to the temple to pray, and on their way, they met a lame man who asked them for money, and they said, silver and gold have we none, but what we do have we give to you. In the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. And of course, that introduced the opportunity for them to begin to share the gospel and to preach about Jesus and the resurrection. And the Sanhedrin called them in and questioned them and threatened them and said, if you continue to do this, bad things await you. And they went back to the believers and they reported all that had happened. And that picks up the account in verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. 
For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. In the book of Acts, Luke recounts for us how the church of Jesus Christ took root through the ministry of the apostles and the first Christians and also how it then began to grow. And Luke begins his account with Jesus' final instructions to his disciples before his ascension into heaven. And you remember what he said. He said after the that, that the Holy Spirit would come on them, and then after the Holy Spirit had come upon them, they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. And that is essentially what the book of Acts is about. It is a record that documents the progress of the gospel and the growth of the early church as it spread, not only in Jerusalem, but ultimately throughout the Roman Empire. The story begins in Jerusalem, recounting how many were converted through the apostles' witness on the day of Pentecost. And um, it tells us in the book of Acts, Luke tells us that about 3,000 were converted to Christianity on that day. And if you read a little before in the account that we just read um, just a moment ago in in Acts chapter 3, Luke tells us that 4,000 men were converted through Peter and John's preaching after they had healed the lame man. And from there, Luke records an ever-widening circle as the witness to the gospel goes forth. Samaritans were converted through the ministry of Philip, and Luke tells us about that in chapter 8. An Ethiopian then is also converted through the ministry of Philip, and he carries his newfound faith to North Africa. Paul is converted and commissioned by God to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And Paul's mission takes him to Asia Minor and to, uh, to Greece and ultimately to Rome itself. And Peter is led by the Holy Spirit to visit Cornelius, a Roman centurion. And he and his household are also converted. And so Luke describes this ever-widening circle that ultimately fulfills what Jesus said, this is what needs to happen. This is what I want you to do. This is what I'm empowering you to do. The way, as it began, began to be known, grew in popularity and continued to spread. So the story weaves its way through the pages of the book of Acts, and by the time Luke's narrative comes to an end, the gospel had indeed been preached, and churches had been established in Judea and in Samaria, and as far as the eastern reaches of Asia Minor and the northern reaches of Greece, and it had moved west, as I said, to Rome itself, where 
members of Caesar's own household were hearing the gospel. But there's another story that runs alongside that story of the church's expansion. And that is the story of the mounting resistance and ultimately outright persecution that developed against the early church. As Christians became more bold in their testimony that Jesus was the Messiah and that he'd risen from the dead, they increasingly came to be seen as a threat, especially by the Jewish authorities. And we see that in uh, in Luke chapter 3 and 4. And as we read, the first signs of trouble came soon after the day of Pentecost, when John and Peter healed that man, and they took advantage of the opportunity to share the gospel. So they were arrested, and they were held in custody overnight, and Though they were released the next day, they weren't released before they had to stand before the Sanhedrin. We talked about that in Sunday school, actually, and uh, the, the point that we made in Sunday school was just how all of these learned men had gathered um, and brought these two fishermen before them. And by the time the council had finished, they were in awe of the knowledge and the grasp of the scriptures that Peter and John had, and they took note that they had been with Jesus. But they were not persuaded by the gospel. And they threatened Peter and John and said, you must not continue to talk about Jesus or the resurrection. So when Peter and John reported this to the believers, it reminded them of Psalm 2 and the fundamental conflict that Psalm 2 talks about between the king of heaven, excuse me, and the kings and kingdoms of this world. And you'll note from what we read that they recognized that Psalm 2 had actually all had actually been fulfilled in the events of Jesus trial and crucifixion. Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Sanhedrin, which included both members of the Sadducees and the Pharisees who normally were at war with each other. But when it came to Jesus, they were in agreement that they needed to get rid of him. And so they gathered together against the Lord, as Psalm 2 says, and against his anointed. And in light of that, the church Those early Christians knew that it wouldn't be long before the antagonism toward Jesus and toward John and Peter would be turned on them as well. And so they prayed, interestingly, not for protection, but for boldness. And their resolve to remain bold in their witness was put to the test pretty quickly. Stephen had been preaching the gospel, and several leaders from one of the synagogues conspired together to silence him. And so they figured out a way to stir up a mob that ultimately resulted in Stephen being brought before the Sanhedrin as well. And the thing that strikes me is after this prayer for boldness, Stephen stands up and he's pretty bold. 
he stood up and he preached the gospel and he indicted Israel's most respected leaders for their complicity in killing the Messiah. He just put it right out there. He said that they were obstinate and rebellious and they were just like their forefathers who had rebelled against Moses. And he, as he draws near the end of his speech, he says, You stiff-necked people, you always resist the Holy Spirit. You killed the prophets who prophesied of the Messiah's coming, and now you have betrayed and murdered the Messiah himself. And as... He ended his speech. God gave him a vision and he cried out, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man, Jesus, standing at the right hand of God. All that didn't go over very well (laughs) with the Sanhedrin. They flew into a rage and dragged Stephen out of the city, and they stoned him. Imagine being a newly converted follower of Jesus as those events unfolded in Jerusalem, and the opposition clearly became more violent. Luke tells us, actually, that on that same day that Stephen was stoned, a terrible persecution broke out against the church. And as a result, Luke says, pretty much everyone except for the apostles themselves fled Jerusalem and they were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. As you know, there was a person present at Stephen's stoning whose name was Saul and he was a young zealous Pharisee. Saul considered Stephen's claims about Jesus to be the worst kind of blasphemy, and he shared the fury of the Sanhedrin, and he even guarded the cloaks of those who stoned Stephen to death. And Luke tells us that after Stephen's stoning, Saul began to destroy the church, and he went from house to house, dragging off men and women alike, and having them thrown into prison. And when the Christians fled Jerusalem, Saul sought permission and followed them with the purpose of imprisoning them, chasing them down, and bringing them back to Jerusalem to stand trial. So if you stop and think about things, uh, and uh, at, at this kind of moment in Luke's testimony, in Luke's record, Um, they don't look very good for the church. Jesus had commanded them to carry the gospel to the ends of the earth, but before their mission had even really had a chance to get off the ground, it was facing violent persecution. And the odds against them seemed overwhelming. It must have seemed overwhelming to them. But it's not unlike the kinds of things that God's people have encountered throughout history. The pages of the Old Testament flow with the blood of those who suffered for their obedience to God. And the writer to the Hebrews provides us with a grim list of atrocities that um, 
that, that, that were brought against them. He says they were mocked and imprisoned. They were beaten and stoned. They were killed with the sword and even sawn in two. They were forced to live in caves and holes in the ground. And we know that in the 20th century, Christians were singled out and hated by the Nazis, who hated, the only people they hated more than Christians were Jews, and by the various communist regimes of the 20th century, the Soviet Union and China and Latin America, and millions of Christians lost their lives for their faith. The psalmist was on the mark. The nations conspire, and the kings of the earth take their stand against the Lord and his anointed one. Those who choose to give their allegiance to the king of heaven will ultimately find themselves in the crosshairs of the kings of earth. It's an ancient, ancient truth. Luke tells us that Saul was on his way to Damascus toward that goal of conspiring against, he didn't realize it, but he was conspiring against the king of heaven, right? And he was on his way to do that when he was confronted by the resurrected Lord. In a flash of blinding light, Saul was knocked to the ground and he heard the voice saying, I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. Later, he would testify that in that moment, he came to realize that Jesus had indeed risen from the dead. And if Jesus was raised from the dead, he must be God's Messiah. And everything in that moment changed for Saul. He was blinded by the flash of light, but the eyes of his heart were opened by that same flash. And within three days, Saul was baptized and he began proclaiming, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The powers of this earth conspire against the purposes of God, but the one enthroned in heaven laughs. Here was the most ardent persecutor of Christians, determined to snuff out the church before it had even had a chance to take root. And what does God do? He brings him into the family. And not only that, but he makes him a tireless witness to the gospel. The very one who threatened to eradicate the testimony about Jesus becomes the means by which the gospel exploded into the Gentile world. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. Paul said it best himself. In Philippians, he said that he had been apprehended by Christ. Do you see the irony there? He was going to arrest people, and Christ arrested him. So what's the point? 
of this story. First of all, we shouldn't be surprised as God's people to find ourselves at odds with the world around us. The freedoms that our country has afforded us to worship Christ freely and without harassment, and they are an incredible blessing. But they are the exception, not the rule. The kings of earth stand arrayed against the Lord and his people. And so we should not be surprised either as we see those freedoms that are so dear to us. It shouldn't surprise us that we see them beginning to erode away. But though the kings of the world conspire against God's people, and at times they can bring their fists down so hard that it would seem that the church couldn't possibly survive, still it will endure. Because what God has begun, he will see through to the end. He has determined to establish for himself a people called out of all of the nations of the world. And he has determined that the good news of Jesus Christ should go forth into all the world. And his church will stand. And as Jesus said, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. When the powers of this world conspired to have Jesus crucified, God turned their scheming into the very means by which he would win the final victory over evil. And when the persecution broke out in Jerusalem and it seemed that all was lost, the scattered church carried the gospel with them and it began to spread like wildfire. When Saul committed himself to destroy the church, God turned him into the greatest evangelist that the world had ever seen. When Mao Zedong began his program to eliminate Christianity in China, the church went underground. And during the first 40 years of communist oppression, the church in China multiplied tenfold. When the authorities in Poland began burning crosses, Christians erected new ones. And every evening they would burn the crosses again and the Christians would have new crosses erected by morning. When most of the church in Germany succumbed to the pressure of Nazi nationalism, the confessing church stood firm in spite of the fact that every day it seemed to get smaller. I actually read kind of the history of the confessing church in Nazi Germany um, this weekend. It's just really, really powerful. It reminded me so much of the struggles that I face as a pastor in, in these times. But they stood firm. Pastors were executed. They were shipped off to concentration camps or they abandoned the cause because it was just too hard. But the confessing church stood firm. And Hitler and his reign of terror is a memory, but the church endures. 
after 70 years of enforced atheism in the Eastern Bloc, the iron fist of the Soviet Union crumbled into dust. And the people flocked where? To the churches. The kings of the earth set themselves against the Lord, and the king of heaven laughs. The battle may rage, but the war is over, and there never has been a question as to its outcome. What God has begun, he will complete. Like a great current flowing inexorably through history, there is nothing that can prevent God's purposes from reaching their final conclusion in that great great day of Jesus Christ. And in that truth, we are secure. No matter what may come against us. We see the clouds gathering again. Night is descending in our culture, in our world. We don't know what the future holds for us here as we sit here in this sanctuary today. We don't know the future of religious freedom in America. We may, in fact, join our brothers and sisters around the world in the years to come who don't have the freedoms that we enjoy and who are suffering now, today, for their faith. We don't know the answers to those questions. We can look at the horizon and see... The the night is coming. We don't know those things, but we do know this. Nothing can stand against the king of heaven. And there is no power that can prevail against his church. So as the psalmist says, may the rulers of the earth be warned. Lest they perish in their way. And may God's people take heart. May we be as bold as Stephen in the confidence that in the power of the Spirit, God intends for us, his people, to storm the gates of hell itself. And it cannot stand. God's church will prevail. The psalmist ends with these words, Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. What a hope we have. What assurance we have. What confidence we can have in uncertain days. There is no power that can stand against our God. His church will endure, and he will gather us all 
around the throne on that great day from every nation and every tribe and every tongue. And we, together with God's people through the ages who have hidden in caves, who have been sawn in two, who have experienced all kinds of things, we will gather together and sing the song of the victory of the Lamb. Let us hold fast to that hope, brothers and sisters. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we thank you so much for the confidence that we can have because we have seen you at work accomplishing your purposes. And you have determined to establish, to create a people for yourself that you have redeemed by the blood of the Lamb and you intend to gather together on that great day. Lord, help us in the midst of this encroaching storm as we see the darkness descending around us and we don't know what the future holds. It doesn't matter. Help us to keep our eyes on you for the victory is already won and the victory is with you. Blessed are all who take refuge in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.